Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and this is ITG's ABCs, a podcast devoted to recapping and commenting on various anthology and backup comic stories. Most of the stories covered on this show are as yet uncollected, and that's certainly the case with this episode's subject, the six-part Phantom Lady serial, published in the anthology title Action Comics Weekly, between January and March of 1989. Action Comics Weekly was something of a publishing experiment by DC Comics. At the time, they'd recently dabbled in a weekly format with the crossover event Millennium, I consider that event, if nothing else, a uh, a well-planned and from a publishing or editorial perspective, a well-executed success. But that series was strictly short-term. Could DC pull off a weekly series long-term? And would the DC Comics fan buy into an anthology format? They'd pumped out loads of these for decades, but at that point, 1989, DC hadn't put out an anthology book in in quite a while. And if there was interest, would those fans want to pony up the six bucks a month at a cover price of $1.50 each to follow a small variety of short features? Could DC pull it off? Well, I guess the answer is yes and no. The Action Comics Weekly experiment lasted almost a year before reverting to a strictly Superman solo starring book. Uh, but almost a year, that's a significant amount of time. It's its something. Uh, though DC wouldn't try another weekly comic for about another 20 years when they hit pay dirt, in my opinion, with the popular and mostly excellent series 52. Now, the features during Action Comic Weekly's run were a mixed bag, in my opinion. I, I think the charming Phantom Lady serial, which I'll be recapping this episode, was one of the more readable features along with Blackhawk, Wild Dog, maybe, and uh, the Green Lantern one was okay. I'd really like to give Secret Six another shot, as I've fallen in love with the artwork of Dan Spiegel since my last aborted attempt to read it probably 15, 20 years ago. Uh, But this episode's all about Phantom Lady, and in the grand scheme of things, this is the second character to be called Phantom Lady. This is not the heroine that debuted in the early 40s in comics published first by Quality, and by a couple of other companies before landing at DC in the mid-70s. That character I first met in the mid-80s in issue number 35 of All-Star Squadron, which is, that's a Hall of Fame comic in my collection. It introduced me to the concept of Earth-X, which helped solidify my understanding of DC's multiverse. It also featured the first death of a comic character that I ever experienced, Phantom Lady's fellow All-Star, the Red Bee was brutally murdered, beaten to death by Nazi supervillain Baron Blitzkrieg. I'd never seen anything like it. Nor had I ever seen much of anything like Phantom Lady. Now, the character stands out. She's, I would say, chiefly known for her skimpy costume, which, as seen in All-Star Squadron, and even as worn by the character that we'll talk about in Action Comics Weekly, uh, the costume has survived pretty much intact without major changes since the since the golden age of comics. 
Phantom Lady's look got her pictured in the pages of Seduction of the Innocent, Frederick Wortham's early 50s anti-comics tirade. Uh, but in story, in those Golden Age stories, in the 70s with the Freedom Fighters, and in the 80s with the All-Star Squadron, Sandra Knight, that's the first Phantom Lady's real name, proved to be more than just a costume. She was a competent heroine, capable of confronting all manner of evil, and equally capable of standing shoulder to shoulder with the likes of Superman, The Flash, Plastic Man, even Uncle Sam himself. And in this brief opportunity in a six-part weekly serial in Action Comics Weekly, Dee Tyler, the second Phantom Lady, uh, maybe she begins to prove something similar. The creative team behind this Phantom Lady revival was writer Len Strzewski, penciler Chuck Austin, inker Gary Martin, letterer John Costanza, colorist Glenn Whitmore, and editor Mark Wade. Phantom Lady feature debuted really at the tail end of the Action Comics Weekly Run in issue number 636, and the co-features this issue are Superman, of course, uh, but you get Speedy, Wild Dog, the Phantom Stranger, and the Demon. Everyone but Phantom Stranger appears on the Dick Giordano cover, which resembles a bulletin board with each feature pinned as either a wanted poster, a newspaper article, or a calendar. In Phantom Lady's case, and she is undoubtedly the star of this cover jam, she gets the most real estate and gets to show off that famous barely-there outfit. Uh, this cover is a well-drawn and a cool way to introduce these features. It's kind of unusual in that most of the Action Comic Weeklies covers featured a, a single series star, and some of these covers are, I would say, are the very best thing about the entire Action Comics Weekly project. Some really standout, pin-up quality work from the likes of Alex Toth, Kurt Swan, both doing a Black Hawk cover, uh, the Rick Burchett Wild Dog cover is a favorite, and the Brian Boland Black Canary cover is another great one. Uh, but this Dick Giordano cover is a, it's a clever way, I think, to get a group shot. So chapter one of the Phantom Lady serial begins with D. Tyler on the dais with a group of fellow graduates of an unnamed special college for women. D is whispering with a friend about their commencement wardrobe and what they've got on underneath their cap and gown, or more accurately, what they haven't got on. D claims to have nothing on, but her friend is slightly more clothed. She's wearing a pair of holstered Colt pistols. This exchange is going on behind the back of a commencement speaker we're led to believe is Mrs. Emma Peel of the Avengers. Mrs. Peel, after speaking about the new class's capability to now be leaders and fighters equal to men, and about their ability to now take direct action, Hands the program over to Dean Knight, who I have to imagine Strzewski intends for us to assume as Sandra Knight, the original Phantom Lady. Now, we don't see either speaker's face, just their legs, uh, but I think this is definitely a, a sly implication by Strzewski and Austin. And some short time later, after graduation, Dee is greeted warmly by her father in his office, in Washington, D.C., he happens to be the 
United States Attorney General. We get a lot of exposition out of the way here in a few panels. Attorney General Tyler is a widower and uh, somehow expected D's European education to prepare her for life in Washington, being the bell of the ball and all that. Dee has a different role in mind. She wants action. She asks her father if he has any criminals she can catch, telling him that she's now an expert at savat, French martial art. We also learn that Dee's childhood friend Sarah is in town attending Georgetown University, and it's with Sarah that Dee will live. Mr. Tyler spends a significant pause here, saying how glad he is that Sarah and Dee have stayed close. Uh, seemingly throwaway, but uh, remember this. It may come back. Mr. Tyler's assistant, Roger, tells the Attorney General that his 2 o'clock appointment is here, a Mr. Gerhardt. The sound of that name flusters Tyler a bit, and he quickly gets rid of both Dee and Roger, who have a little run-in with Gerhardt and his bodyguard, Gronk, who, I've got to say, looks nothing like a certain New England Patriots tight end, but uh, I'm curious to see if this Gronk will be any less injury-prone than the other Gronk. We'll see. Neither one of these characters, Gerhardt or Gronk, seem like they're very nice, uh, and while they meet with Attorney General Tyler, Roger explains to Dee that Gerhardt is a big defense industry lobbyist and frequently meets with the Attorney General. Roger says these oftentimes argumentative meetings are having a negative effect on Tyler. Roger worries that his boss may not be able to cope with the current big deal, an arms smuggling scandal. Now Dee waits around on her own for the meeting to end, and when Gerhardt and Gronk leave Tyler's office, Dee trips them up with an umbrella handle without letting them see her face and threatens them with violence, saying they're not the only ones who know how to hurt people. Later, in an apartment she now shares with her friend Sarah, Dee, dressed in the yellow one-piece that forms the basis of Phantom Lady's costume, gives her roommate a further sample of what she's learned at her special college. When asked by Sarah, what Dee plans to do about her father's problem with this guy, Gerhardt, she kicks a board in half and quotes Mrs. Peel, saying she plans to take direct action. Chapter 2, called Luck Be a Lady, opens with Dee outside of a popular Washington night spot. She's on a payphone telling Sarah that uh, this place was mentioned in several files in her father's office, which she obviously had an opportunity to snoop around. Uh, it seems to be a great place to try out her costume and the, quote, laser gimmicks rigged up by Sarah. Dee is sporting some serious green goggles and is covered in a tightly wrapped trench coat. She cuts the long line to get into the nightclub, walks right up to the doorman and flashes him. Now, we don't see what the coat is hiding, but the suddenly wide-eyed bouncer lets Dee right through. And the page two splash reveals all. As Dee enters the nightclub in full Phantom Lady regalia, yellow one-piece swimsuit with the huge peekaboo window, green cape, boots, and uh, green gloves, which may 
be the biggest addition to the outfit in this iteration. She definitely turns some heads. She sidles up to the bar and asks where she can find a man named Farid. Only a bribe gets the bartender to announce her on an office phone, while a couple of Washington types down at one end of the bar send a drink and a vial of cocaine down to D's end of the bar. She pours the coke into the drink and sends it crashing back to her stunned potential suitors as she makes her way toward Farid's backroom office. Now, D, or Phantom Lady, as she asks the bartender to introduce her, calls herself an associate of Gerhardt's who's in the market for some weapons. The uh, sleazy Mr. Farid claims not to recall the name, though his expression says otherwise. Now, I really love this sequence. First of all, are Farid's expressions. <laughs> uh, I understand this is early in Chuck Austin's development as an artist, but he does a great job here, uh, especially with Farid. The expressions are so good. Looks of frustration, bewilderment, <laughs> confusion. Um, reminds me of Stephen Stefano's work on Amazing Men. Another thing I like about this scene is as the characters converse, we're given a, a good idea of what Phantom Lady can do. We see that Farid is having trouble with his lighter. He can't get a spark. So Phantom Lady uses some sort of laser from her bracelet to light his cigarette. And when Farid gets a little too handsy, we see that he was just about to fondle a hologram produced by a Sarah-designed amulet. After spilling the beans about a cache of weapons he sold to some terrorists targeting a group of senators that very evening, Farid gets a final surprise from Phantom Lady's arsenal, a taser to the neck as he was about to pull a gun on D. As she exits the bar on her way to intercept the terrorists, D is detained by the bouncer, uh, but that doesn't last long as she gives him the old one-two of heel to the foot, uppercut to the jaw. She hops into a nearby cab, telling the driver to step on it. And he's only too glad to oblige, driving Dee right into Chapter 3, called Toast of the Capitol. Dee's cab finds its way to said Capitol building, and uh, she jumps out, running right into Roger Richter, her father's assistant. In this collision, she loses her goggles, and Roger recognizes her right away. Uh, the poor cabbie, he just wants his fare. But this little group is greeted by a pair of ski mask goons holding a couple of senators at gunpoint right on the steps of the Capitol building. That's ballsy. And this group is escorted by a giant robot-looking thing. Looks to me like an early Tony Stark reject. Roger notices that this robot, actually a suit of armor called a unitank, and the pistols the goons are using to make off with the senators, are some experimental weapons that are as yet untested and they're connected to this big deal Roger was referring to earlier, this arms smuggling case. It's here that the cabbie notices for the first time who his fare had been and he immediately recognizes her as Phantom Lady. He's a little confused though as he says that he had her in his cab before when he was just a kid in the 40s. 
Obviously, this was Sandra Knight, who used his cab 40 years ago. And uh, I hate to pause right here before the action starts, but I kind of like that cabbie's comment and find it kind of interesting. Basically, he's saying that he remembers Phantom Lady. And this is at a time when DC was doing everything in its power to forget the Golden Age heroes. And I may want to revisit this idea after I finish this chapter's recap, so... Uh, yeah, hold that thought. Well, luckily, the terrorists on the steps of the Capitol aren't in any rush, and they pause while D, Roger, and Cab the cabbie decide, uh, decide what they're going to do. D ignores Roger's suggestion to call the cops, and charges right ahead using her gem clasp to create an army of hologramic phantom ladies, which confused the armed baddies. The real Phantom Lady kicks the experimental pistols out of their hands, uh, though the Unitank, it turns out, has flame-throwing fingers and produces a fireball that sends everyone to the ground. Roger came packing some heat, but his standard revolver and its bullets have zero effect on the Unitank. Cabby at this point tells the Senators, the intended kidnappees, to, to take his cab and scram. But rather than wisely driving off with them, he runs to intercept the fleeing masked guys, and though he does this best, he kind of gets the crap beat out of him. And by the way, he has gone above and beyond here, uh, and he should definitely get an excellent uber rating. Phantom Lady and Roger have their hands full with the unit tank. Or maybe I should say the unit tank has its hands full of Phantom Lady. He's got her in a choking grip around the waist and uh, the way her breasts are resting on the unitank's fat fingers this would have Frederick Wortham spinning in his grave but uh, D figures out her wrist laser can pierce the unitank's helmet which causes the guy inside to drop her and when the other two masked guys try to get away in their van D whips up a holographic duplicate van which causes the others to swerve and smash into a light post. So she pretty much single-handedly took out this little terrorist group who came packing some pretty serious artillery. The guy inside the unitank confesses that he and his gang were put up to this by Gerhardt, that slime ball we met outside the Attorney General's office, who we find out here is connected to an international crime cartel called Les Milieux. And D is left to figure out how to get this Gerhardt guy off her dad's back. So before I recap the second half of this serial, I just want to contextualize this a little bit. This new Phantom Lady kind of just comes out of nowhere, but at a time when in an effort to move on from the past, I guess, the DC Comics shuffled the Justice Society of America off into an alternate dimension, and other Golden Age heroes had either been retired or relegated to limbo. Now, I don't know if this new Phantom Lady debuted first, or the Roger Stern, Tom Lyle Starman did, but it was around this time, now we're four or five years after Crisis on Infinite Earths, that we started to see some cracks start to form in the wall, keeping the old-timers out. And a new generation of legacy heroes using some very old names started to pop up, led by Starman, Phantom Lady, 
We had the Ostrander and Yale Manhunter series debuting around this time. And uh, within a couple years, we'd see another wave with the Ray, Black Condor, and even a short-lived revival of the Justice Society itself, written by Phantom Lady's own Len Strzewski. And he obviously had an affinity for and a respect for DC's Golden Age heroes. And these books, all of them carrying at least the, the name of an old hero, none of them really lasted very long, but uh, they would help bridge the gap to James Robinson's Starman series, which in many ways I think is a perfect superhero story with the way it both honors the Golden Age past, uh, but also presses forward, the way the hero reluctantly accepts the mantle of a legacy hero, something that DC seemed uncomfortable with for a few years. And this hero survives both a shaky start and a series of learning experiences and a maturing process that gets the hero to the point where he can gracefully hand off the mantle to the next generation. And of course, the Starman comic dovetails nicely into the James Robinson, Jeff Johns JSA series, which was a real renaissance for some golden age goodies like the original Flash, original Green Lantern, Wildcat, and this series continued to bridge that gap between the, the best of the old and with hope for the new. I like to think that the seeds of that renaissance were planted by Strzewski and Austin and others in, in stories like this. Now, there's no official acknowledgement of the Golden Age Phantom Lady in this serial. Dee's Phantom Lady identity just seems to spring forth fully formed with no direct connection to Sandra Knight apart from, you know, the wardrobe and bits of the arsenal and the implication at the beginning of the story that Sandra Knight was headmistress of Dee's special school. And I think this may have been borne out and confirmed in later years. Um, and honestly, I would have liked to have seen some more interaction between the generations of Phantom Lady, but in the limited space of the serial, it would be hard to do, and, and to have D hit the ground running, as I'm sure Strzewski wanted. Uh, and in seven pages of a story, what are you going to do? And there may have been plans to connect Sandra Knight and D. Had this story come out four or five years later, when DC couldn't help themselves and encouraged all kinds of legacy connections between characters, you can bet <laughs> there'd be some, there'd be more holding the stories of. Sandra Knight and Dee Tyler together. And with a surname like Tyler, I'd further bet that uh, Dee would end up being Rex Tyler, the Hour Man's either niece, cousin, daughter, <laughs> real daughter, who knows. Uh, but of course, none of this was to be. Anyway, how will Dee handle the conclusion to her very first adventure? Well, let's find out in Chapter 4. <laughs> And I'm Sean. We're here to tell you about our podcast, Worst Collection Ever. And this is the show where we tell you about the worst comic book collection in existence. And it just happens to belong to us. We have some of the worst comics from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're bad. They don't, Terrible. They're not worth anything. No good. Why do we Very own them? Bad. I own a number of issues of Terror, Inc. and Guy Gardner. Basically, 
we go around to local comic book stores and we buy everything we can out of dollar boxes. We tell you about the weird stuff in them. We tell you about stuff that's related to them. We go into tangents and we're very uninformed. So, Oh my God, totally. But totally check out our podcast because you'll hear us just talk and joke about Marvel books and DC books from God only knows when. That's right. It's our show, Worst Collection Ever, every Tuesday on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Download, rate, subscribe, tell a friend. It'll be good and terrible, but good. So chapter four of the serial called Bell of the Ball. This is in issue number 639 of Action Comics Weekly. Uh, and this issue sports the only other Phantom Lady cover. This one done by Kevin Nolan. This chapter opens with Dee checking out the newspaper coverage of her exploits thus far while she plans her next move with Sarah. The article she's reading refers to her saving the vice president, so I guess he was one of a pair of hostages on the steps of the Capitol. Phantom Lady's late notoriety is actually helping Dee's plans as her next move is to crash a masquerade ball thrown by Gerhardt. And Dee and Sarah are expecting a whole crowd of Phantom Ladies, inspired by the popularity of this new folk hero. In fact, to further preserve her anonymity, Dee plans on using a hologram of a clown to hide behind if she needs it. Here, Sarah refers to her graduate education, which is where she somehow learned to create these sophisticated images. Uh, Roger is escorting Dee to the ball. He's dressed as some kind of cross between Roy Harper's Speedy and William Shakespeare, or maybe he's just cosplaying the Inferior Five's White Feather. I don't know. Uh, but when they arrive, sure enough, just about every woman guest is wearing a Phantom Lady outfit. And here, Chuck Austin sneaks in Hobbs of Calvin and Hobbs into the party. They run into an old friend of Dee's, Marie, this was the pistol-carrying fellow graduate we met in the first chapter. And she's packing those colts again tonight, and she's ready to have some fun. Or maybe cause a little trouble. And Marie, like most other women there, is cosplaying Phantom Lady. And this one I think about is a very interesting use of Phantom Lady's greatest power, which is, let's face it, her look. Her look, ever since Sandra Knight and the Golden Age has been more useful to the character than any taser or laser or hologram, and to deploy this special power at a masquerade ball full of phantom ladies, to distract and dig up dirt on this Gearheart creep, uh, it's a genius way to use that superpower. This crowd of phantom ladies is going to produce an illusion of sorts, but in this case it's, it's camouflage in almost any other situation Dee would find herself in. Her outfit, her physique, <laughs> she would stand out, and her costume would be providing another kind of distraction. But here at the party, the effect of her look is amplified to the point of, well, it's almost like interference. And when Dee, Roger, and Marie are greeted kind of rudely by their host, Mr. Gearhart, and he's got Gronk tagging along, Roger covers for the girls, saying that they're new assistants in his office. And when the trio catch Gearhart with Dee's father, 
who's at the party and dressed in a ridiculous correct egg costume. And then they see Mr. Tyler hand over a folder to Gearheart. D sends Roger and Marie on distraction duty while she follows Gearheart, Gronk, and the Attorney General back to Gearheart's office. From outside the office, she overhears a heated exchange. Tyler tells Gearheart that he's given him what he's wanted, the folder. And he demands that Gearheart give over the photographs. Hmm. Uh, but Gearheart isn't ready to play. Whatever hold he has on the Attorney General, he wants to, to keep it. Keep him on the hook a while longer. Well, Tyler's had enough. He pulls a gun on Gearheart, but he immediately gets clubbed by Gronk, who's fittingly dressed as a caveman. Now, Dee's heard enough. She interrupts the beating, using her clown hologram to, to pose as a lost guest looking for the bathroom. This interruption causes Gronk to leave the room, but Gerhardt lingers over Tyler's beaten body thumbing through the file. But Dee sneaks in, now as Phantom Lady, tases Gerhardt, and helps her father toward the exit. They're stopped right at the front door by a pistol-wielding Gronk, but Marie... Wielding those Colt pistols, shoots the gun right out of Gronk's hand. And in the car, with Roger accompanying her father to the hospital, D, now knowing that her father's being blackmailed, he's being forced to turn a blind eye to Gerhardt's gun smuggling, she vows to return to the Gerhardt mansion in the penultimate chapter 5. And this chapter, called The Lady of the House, opens with D pole vaulting over the barbed wired walls of Gerhardt's estate at night. And here she's sporting some night vision visor, no doubt invented by her genius pal, Sarah. Where did she get all these wonderful toys? It's funny, in every chapter of the serial, Dee's got a, a different kind of eyewear. In chapter two, she's got the huge goggles, which will be her standard look going forward. Chapter three, the goggles get knocked off early, so she's just plain-faced. Uh, for the costume party, she's wearing a domino-type mask, and here she's got the night vision visor, which looks very much like a green version of Cyclops's ruby quartz thingy. Well, she pole vaults over the wall, deals with some Dobermans, makes it to the house, and cracks a wall safe in which she expects to find Gearheart's blackmail photos. She finds the photos, but there's also a voice recording inside Gearheart expected something like this and the voice introduces Gronk who's now in the room right behind Phantom Lady. Dee tries everything at her disposal. A dog hologram doesn't work. Taser. He rips it away. And left with nothing but physical skill, Dee kicks out and breaks Gronk's leg Oof, pretty severely. Austin's got his leg bending the wrong way. Forward 90 degrees. Ugh. And then a chop to the neck finishes the job. Gearhart himself then shows up holding a gun. Looks like one of those experimental pistols that the terrorists were using on the steps of the Capitol. But before you can even get a good look at D, she quickly, and I gotta say pretty ruthlessly, fires her wrist laser at his face. And this doesn't kill him, but it obviously hurts. His face is smoking. And then a display of a kind of cruel sense of humor, which kind of liking my favorite heroines. Shanna would joke this way. Dee offers to call him an ambulance, and as she leaves the room, she says, 
okay, you're an ambulance. On the final page of the chapter, D at home, looking at one of the blackmail photos, exclaims, my God, it can't be, not him. All right, Phantom Lady, the final chapter called Lady Lost. It's kind of a weird concluding chapter. I'm not saying that the story goes off the rails, but it isn't exactly what I expected. Um, the action in the Phantom Lady adventure, it is, it's over. Uh, basically what we have here is a six-page conversation between Dee and her father. She angrily demands the next morning, I guess, in Attorney General Tyler's office, that her father explain the contents of the folder she's stolen from Gerhardt. Mr. Tyler's surprised, first, that his daughter has somehow gotten a hold of this blackmail material, uh, but also at the bruises and bumps that she's received in obtaining said documents. There's a special emphasis when Tyler compares Dee to her deceased mother, calling Dee dot 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 so resourceful. The photos show a very young Tyler present at a KKK lynching of a young black man. It turns out Tyler's older brother, Bo, who Tyler looked up to very much, was involved with in charge of this lynching, and uh, Tyler, the reluctant younger brother, his silence has, was bought with the taking of these photos. So he's really been blackmailed twice by these pictures. And Tyler's brother is now affiliated with the crime cartel Les Milieu, and it's he who forwarded these incriminating pictures to arms lobbyist Gerhardt. So news of an uncle comes as a complete shock to Dee, as does, understandably, her father's out-of-nowhere association with a, such a despicable group as the KKK. After the lynching, Tyler explains that he ran away, joined the Navy, met and fell in love with Diana, a student at the special college that Dee ended up attending. Tyler and Diana were married, and together they began shaping Tyler's career in law and justice as a sort of penance for his past. And when Dee was small, her mother passed away, and now, obviously, Tyler's past has come back to haunt him. And Dee tries to console her father, saying that everything will be okay. Now they have the pictures. It's her job now to take care of him. But uh, he's, at this point, is done covering up. It's, it's time to come clean. And in the last page epilogue, we see Gearhart on the phone. He's wearing a pair of shades. He tells whoever he's talking to that the Tyler case is closed. The Attorney General has resigned. But there's the matter of the woman who helped him. And she seems familiar to Gerhardt. He orders that word be spread throughout Les Milieux. If she's ever seen again, she's dead. And he removes his glasses to reveal some pretty severe burns around some obviously now blind eyes. Parting gift from Phantom Lady. And for added emphasis, Gerhardt punches through a glass window and repeats, Dead! And we readers are asked if we want to see more Phantom Lady, write in and let us know. 
Uh, so yeah, the last chapter in a six-part serial with so much exposition and little action this felt a little odd. Um, so much explanation was saved for this finale, and despite the shock at Attorney General Tyler's revelation of his association with the KKK, I wish some of the sordid details of Dee's father's life had been kind of teased out or parceled out in previous chapters, though now that comment early in the first chapter about how happy Tyler is that Dee has gotten along with her friend and roommate Sarah, who's African-American, this does have a significance and was a, a first hint, I guess, at a penitent attorney general. And of course, the horrific depiction of a lynch. Uh, lynching doesn't help make this an easy read. In fact, it's a pretty difficult read as the, the wrap-up to, to the serial. Um, so that's it for Phantom Lady 2's very first and only solo adventure. And as I said before, despite a dodgy final sixth I find it to be, overall, one of the more enjoyable Action Comics Weekly features. It's obvious that Straczewski had a lot of ideas for the characters, some of them seeming to get short shrift with the way this serial was doled out seven pages at a time, at the connection between Sandra Knight and the Tylers, history and students of Dee's special college, Sarah's background and her amazing ability to come up with Dee's arsenal, and then the matter of Bo Tyler and the coming war between Lemuel Yu and Phantom Lady. All these topics, I think, could have nicely filled out an ongoing monthly series. But if anyone wanted to see these things explored, I guess they didn't write in to let DC know. Now, Phantom Lady became one of those characters who turned up here and there, never joined a team or anything, showed up in a lot of group shots... Uh, she did rate an entry in the loose-leafed Who's Who, which is definitely where I first saw her. She got a trading card in the first series of DC Cosmic Cards. Uh, but in comic stories, sadly, Len Strzewski seemed to be her only champion. He wrote D into an issue of The Flash he did, uh, and then she hung out around with Will Payton for a few issues of Starman during Strzewski's run on that title. James Robinson did bring her back in his Starman series when she was one of several heroes trapped in Opal City and fought for its freedom alongside fellow legacy hero Black Condor and uh, Ralph and Sue Dibney and a few others. But before too long, sad to say, Dee Tyler was killed brutally, shamefully, in Infinite Crisis, an event series full of brutal and shameful treatment of some some pretty great DZ characters. I think Phantom Lady 2 had some potential. I think she got to show a little bit of that in this serial, seven pages at a time. And uh, while I don't expect a Phantom Lady revival anytime soon, I'm, I'm willing to be patient. The idea of an ass-kicking hero based in Washington, D.C., ready and willing to expose political corruption in the Capitol, that's an idea that doesn't seem like it will ever lose any relevance. I plan on putting some images from this serial up on the blog, imthegun.blogspot.com. There you will also find my contact info, should you want to get in touch with me. Uh, but I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this, so till the next time, eight pages is just too much story.
Take care.